get out of Finland, this is the Reluctant Theologian Podcast. I am your host, Dr. R.T. Mullins from the University of Helsinki. Open theism is a provocative model of God that has captured the attention of various philosophers and theologians from different religious traditions. The view has garnered different criticisms, such as the recent book edited by Ben Arbor called Philosophical Essays Against Open Theism. In today's episode, I develop some of Ben Arbor's objections to open theism, and I have the one and only Dale Tuggy here to offer his replies. Dale and I articulate and analyze several of Arbor's objections to open theism based on perfect being theology, omniscience, and scripture. If you have questions or topics that you'd like to hear on the show, you can send me a message at rtmullins.com. Ready or not, here's Dale and I talking about open theism. Enjoy. So I recently aired a series of episodes on open theism. And so on this show, I try to give listeners arguments for and against different views so they can kind of make up their own mind. Now, Ben Arbor had recently edited and contributed to a book called Philosophical Essays Against Open Theism. But tragically, Ben and his wife Meg died just a few days before we were scheduled to record the episode. I had had a few different phone conversations and Facebook chats with Ben about the arguments that he wanted to run on the episode. And since his critiques of open theism are you know, somewhat new and interesting, I thought it'd be very important to, to find a way to have his voice heard. And it'd also be a way to honor and celebrate Ben's life and work, if only in a very small way. And so what I'm going to do today is I'm going to try to run Ben's arguments for him. And then I've got Dale Tuggy here and he's going to respond. And so what I want to emphasize is that I am going to do the best I can to just articulate some of Ben's arguments against open theism. And I'm certain I'm going to be missing some different nuances in his arguments. And I know I'm going to be putting my own twist on things. I'm mainly just basing these arguments on Ben's written work and then previous conversations I've had with him. So in a few places, I'll even be trying to fill in some gaps that I think fit with the spirit of what Ben is, is trying to say. So let's get into this first question here. So one of the things that I've appreciated about, like Dale, about your work and then about Ben's essays in Against Open Theism is the sort of taxonomy given of different versions of open theism. And so I think it's helpful for seeing the different conceptions of open theism. And then it's also helpful for framing different critical arguments for and against uh, different versions of open theism. So in its simplest form, Ben identifies two broad versions of open theism in the contemporary literature. And so they're all united in denying that God has exhaustive, definite foreknowledge of the future. But open theists disagree on you know, some of the different details here. And so Ben says that there's a view called limited foreknowledge open theism that has representatives like Richard Swinburne, William Hasker, and Peter Van Wagen. And then another view that Ben calls open future open theism which has representatives like J.R. Lucas, Dean Zimmerman, Alan Rhoda, and then Dale, like you, you yourself. Now, Dale, if I remember correctly, you call these narrow road and wide road open theism. So maybe you could tell us a bit about each view, and then, then in particular, your own stance, since we're going to be considering objections to your view. Sure, Ryan. And first, let me say it's a huge honor to be on the best analytic theology podcast. I really appreciate uh, being able to talk to, talk to you about Ben's uh, work the basic difference is that limited foreknowledge open theists think there is a complete set of truths about all of the past, present, and future, as much as there would be if some sort of fatalism were true. So in principle, God could know all of these, but for some reason, God chooses to limit his foreknowledge about future events. They insist that this is compatible with God being omniscient, but I think they have illicitly tinkered with the definition of omniscience. In contrast, open future theists like me think that there is an objective indeterminateness to the future so that in principle it can't be fully known in advance. Some of us, like Alan Rhoda, whose work is excellent, by the way, hold that statements about future contingents, that is about events which as of now may or may not happen, statements about those are all false. In my 2007 paper, Three Roads to Open Theism, and in my 2014 Trinity's podcast, 80, I've defended the view that statements about future contingents are neither true nor false. I call that the wide road to open theism because historically it's been more popular than what I call the narrow road view, which is what Ben calls limited foreknowledge open theism. And the Rhoda type all false view I dubbed the shortcut to open theism as I think it's sort of not well-motivated, which I discuss in that paper. Of course, Alan Rhoda would disagree. He, think it's, he thinks it's plenty well-motivated, mm -hmm. but uh, it has to do with 
the truth conditions. I think they're strange. Um, so let me illustrate my own view with a realistic example. Suppose that as of right now, tomorrow I can either listen to Black Sabbath or not. So the future one day ahead from now is currently unsettled in that particular respect. So Rhoda and others would say that Dale will listen to Black Sabbath tomorrow is false. And also, this is false. It's not the case that Dale will listen to Black Sabbath tomorrow. I think this is mistaken. If the matter is really unsettled as of now, then reality currently doesn't have what it takes for either of those statements to be either true or false, which would be a fact that as of now, I I definitely will or definitely will not listen to Black Sabbath tomorrow. So I would say to the contrary, right now, both seem to be in my power. I could make those statements true or I can make them false. When I say this, I'm assuming that the statement in question is only about tomorrow and not also about today in relation to tomorrow. But you'll have to consult the sources I mentioned for all the dirty technical details about that difference. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, I read a forthcoming paper from William Hasker where he actually flips his position to look more like your own. Like he's decided to give up the whole limited foreknowledge open theist view and just go like, yeah, we should we should just do an open future view. So, so I think yeah, you might be onto something here because he was convinced by a lot of the stuff that you and Alan uh, Rhoda had done. So with that being said, though, I want to look at one of Ben's arguments against your version of open theism. So on your view, it's, there's, like, there's no book of the world that describes how the future will in fact unfold. And so the future is not settled, but instead it's, it's, you know, it's open. And so Ben has this perfect being argument against the open future, open theist view. It has the assumption that in order for God to be perfect, God is essentially maximal in knowledge. And then from there, the argument goes a little something like this. So various philosophers of time, they'll say that the ontology of time is a contingent matter. So the ontology of time says what moments of time exist. So people like me, like I'm a presentist, and I say only the present moment of time exists. And then open theists like like you and Rhoda and Zimmerman, like, you know, affirm presentism as well. Uh, But there's other people, though, who want to say, well, you know, eternalist ontology, like on which like all moments of time exist, like that's the true story. And then open future, open theists, they're going to reject that view because they think the future, you know, is not settled. It's not completely settled in the way the eternalist would say. And so what happens in the future is eternally happening. Uh, but an open theist like Rhoda will say, if that's the case, like on eternalism, then there's no free will. Now, Ben affirms a slightly different view. So Ben affirms a moving spotlight view. And so what the moving spotlight view does is it adopts an eternalist ontology of time, but it adds that there's like this, somehow this special present moment on top of the, the, uh, the eternal block. Now, eternalists, they reject the idea of a privileged present moment, but the moving spotlight view says that there is, in fact, this privileged present. And then it's like the spotlight that just somehow, again, moves across this eternal block. Now, most philosophers of time will say that the ontology of time is contingent. So there are possible worlds in which presentism is true. And there are also possible worlds in which an eternalist ontology of time is true. And then there are possible worlds in which a moving spotlight ontology is, is true. So what Ben does is he says, well, look, you know, if there's all these possible worlds that God could create, well, God's got options. So why would God pick a presentist world? If God picked a presentist world, then God will not know the future. So why would God create a world that renders himself less than maximally great in knowledge? Now, that's part of Ben's like, uh, objection, but he goes a little bit stronger, though. So Ben wants to say that it is impossible for God to create a presentist world. If God is essentially omniscient, then God is going to select a world in which God has maximal knowledge. So God cannot create a world in which God has less knowledge, because that just goes against the very idea of God being a perfect being. So that's, that's Ben's argument. But I think there's a caveat here. Like I had my own response to this objection uh, when, and I asked Ben about it in a Facebook chat. Uh, I said, like, couldn't the open theist just say that it's impossible for God to create a world with an eternalist ontology of time or just impossible to create a moving spotlight ontology of time? Uh, like, why would the open future open theist accept that basic premise that it's possible for God to create all these other worlds? And so when I asked Ben about this, um, it's because personally, I think presentism, I think it's just the only game in town. I think these other rival ontologies of time, I don't think they're talking about time. So for example, when I, when I like look at uh, eternalism, I think that eternalists have spatialized time so much that it's no longer talking about time at all. But again, this was a Facebook message with, uh, between Ben and I, and Ben just responded with lol, no, like that's not. You know. <laughs> <laughs> so I never got the details from him uh, beyond that, uh, which is you know, fair enough. But I, I reflected on it more and I thought maybe Ben's got some more he could do here. Uh, So here's a way to kind of bolster Ben's argument. 
So open theists like William Hasker and Richard Rice, they both have arguments in favor of open theism that assume something like Ben's premise in this, in this argument. So Hasker and Rice both say that God had options over which kind of universe God could create. They say that God could have created an open theist universe with an open future. Uh, well, you know, and then on that case, you know, God wouldn't know which future is going to happen. Uh, but then uh, Rice and Hasker also say that God could have created a Calvinist universe in which God completely determines everything that will happen in the future. So here we have two leading open theists saying that God does have these kinds of options when it comes to the kind of worlds that he could have created. And so they're saying that God could have created uh, these other kinds of worlds, but Hasker and Rice argue that God had better reasons to create an open theist world. And the reasons are supposed to be things like the value of creaturely freedom and genuine relationships between God and creatures. So I guess is I see the situation something like this. So there are already various philosophers and theologians who are in the open theist camp who seem to be just accepting or buying into the basic premises of, of Ben's argument. So they affirm that God is the greatest possible being and that God has a range of possible worlds to select from. And then open theists, they, you know, they want to run different arguments for why God would select an open world. But Ben can just drop into that conversation and he can say like, whoa, guys, like, well, like, why would God create a world in which he's not essentially maximal in knowledge, in which he's not essentially omniscient? Like, why would God create a world in which he just has less than maximal knowledge? That just doesn't make any sense. And that's going to be a strike against God creating an open theist world. So, Dale, like, you know, what do you think about this kind of argument? Well, buckle up. This is going to be a long answer. Okay. <laughs> that's okay, because it was a long question. Yeah. Um, I agree with Ben that God is essentially omniscient. So, there couldn't be something which is true, but God doesn't know that it's true. And it couldn't be that there is something which is false, but God doesn't know that it's false. And I agree that this sort of cognitive perfection is just one aspect of God's overall perfection. Now, given that this perfection is essential to God, there is no possible world, so to speak, in which he fails to be this way. And so it's not up to God to be omniscient or not, depending on what sort of cosmos God creates. Of course, the contents of God's knowledge about the cosmos will depend on what kind of cosmos God's create. Suppose God doesn't create at all. In that circumstance, God would lack knowledge about, say, actual giraffes, humans, and orangutans, but he would still be all-knowing in the sense that I describe, that he knows of every truth that it's true, he knows of every falsehood that it's false. The contents of God's complete knowledge don't make him greater or lesser, otherwise his not creating would make him less great than he is, something which I think all theists should reject. If God creates a world containing free creatures— and as of now, there then as of now, there's no truth about what they'll definitely, that is not merely possibly or probably be doing a year from now. And so God won't know that as there are no such facts to know right now. There won't be any, in other words, there won't be any relevant true or false statements or thoughts. Mm -hmm. In choosing to make creatures like this, God is making a choice that has implications about how predictable his creatures will be, but he's not thereby choosing to not be perfect in knowledge. What Hasker and Rice are getting at, I think, is that God was free to make either a deterministic or an indeterministic cosmos. Roughly, he could have made a mechanistic universe where every event w would have been predictable with certainty from the very first moment. But instead, God chose to have a creation in which some of his creatures get a say over how things turn out. So what course history takes is partly up to us, even though God is superintending the whole circus. But about the assumption that the nature or ontology of time is contingent, I'm inclined to doubt that it is, since I think time is somehow necessarily related to the necessarily existing God, as you discuss in your recent paper, The Divine Time Maker. Mm -hmm. In my view, of necessity, God exists and is all-powerful and all-knowing, and I would argue that essentially God has libertarian freedom. This just requires awareness of and motives to do more than one thing in some situations. For instance, given that God chose to create, it's plausible that God was free to bring about a cosmos in which there are or are not unicorns. And we think that he freely chose the no unicorn option, sadly. So no matter what, given that God exists and that there is flowing time, there will be an open future or maybe even just that there is time at all, whether it's flowing or not, there's going to be an open future since even if God has made a deterministic cosmos, the future may still turn out different ways solely based on the free choices that God can make. 
So his existence entails, so to speak, a garden of forking paths, a series of different ways things might turn out. And if there are no creatures with libertarian freedom, then any creatures there are will just deterministically kind of ride along in this system. And it would only then be God who influences which paths history goes down. Normally, believing in free will, we think it's somewhat up to us how our lives turn out. Uh, If we turn out not to have free will, well, there might still be different options, but we wouldn't be the ones picking them Mm -hmm. in any sense. So to summarize, since God is essentially omniscient, he doesn't have options about whether or not he's omniscient. The exact contents of his knowledge will differ according to how many and what sorts of things God makes, but these differing contents won't imply that God is greater or lesser. Whether he doesn't create or makes a deterministic universe or makes a universe in which some of his creatures get some control over what happens, he'll be no more or less perfect in knowledge in that what there is in reality doesn't outstrip what he knows. That makes a lot of sense to me because, so, okay. So again, you're saying God's perfect, totally fine. He's essentially omniscient, but what he knows depends on partly on what he decides to create. So you're going to have that on any story of the world, regardless if you're an open theist. You're going to have a possibility of different contents in God's knowledge, I think, whatever your view of divine providence is. Mm -hmm. No, that seems right to me. You can't tie God's perfection to a particular bunch of contents. I mean, some of the contents will be the same no matter what, right? Relating to what's necessary and what's possible. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the content will change again like if he just decides not to create he will then have no knowledge about creation right uh which might be infinitely less uh well it's hard to subtract out of infinities but anyway right. <laughs> it'd be missing a whole gigantic realm of knowledge but you, you shouldn't think that that would be a hit on god he's supposed to uh, you know not need anything else to exist in perfection Right. Yeah. So what we, that's, and that's exactly right because so a very standard claim within classical theism is that God is self-sufficient, that his perfections mm-hmm. are not dependent upon contingent reality, nor are they dependent upon whatever he does with his free will because he could do whatever he wants with his free will. They wouldn't, shouldn't diminish or change his perfection. Like his perfection is not based on those things. He already is perfect before he decides to do anything freely. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I see, I see what you're up to. Yeah, whereas our minds just kind of scratch the surfaces of things, and you <laughs> yeah. know there isn't anything we can fully understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, not God, not an electron, not not souls, nothing. There isn't anything we completely understand as far as concrete objects. I think uh, maybe maybe concepts, but yeah, God's God's knowledge will be adequate to completely surround, so to speak, just whatever there is, whether that's only God or this type of universe or that type of universe. And, and that's what it is to be essentially all-knowing. No, yeah, okay. That makes sense. So let's get into another one of Ben's objections. So he's got this other objection that is focused on, again, like on open future, open theist. And what he does is he says it's based on a systematic metaphysics. So Ben spends a lot of time trying to develop this argument in one of his papers, but I, th- I think it's got some missing pieces. So as far as I can tell, it's a, it's a challenge to open theism, but not necessarily like a fully developed objection. So what I'll do is I'll kind of present a sort of challenge with a weaker conclusion than than what Ben does, but I think it's the best conclusion that I can see from what Ben actually says in his paper. So Ben points out that there's this renewed interest among philosophers in developing a systematic metaphysics. And you can see this in different thinkers. So like DM Armstrong has a book just called A Sketch for Systematic Metaphysics. So in systematic theology, theologians organize their systems around key fundamental themes like, you know, God, creation, humankind, salvation, eschatology, like these sorts of things. And so Ben says that systematic metaphysics, it's similar. It tries to organize a metaphysical system around key fundamental themes. And so Ben says that there are four fundamental themes. So there's properties, laws of nature, causation, and modality. And so according to Ben Arbor, like once you develop your theories on these four key themes, then all sorts of implications are going to follow for other areas of metaphysics like identity or freedom or time or, or whatever. Now, modality is the driving force in this particular challenge to open theism. So in contemporary metaphysics, analytic philosophers, they've kind of overwhelmingly adopted possible world semantics to cash out modal concepts like necessity, possibility, and contingency. A possible world is a maximally consistent proposition that describes the entire way things could be. So like a world in which God exists all alone, or a world in which God exists with with a universe, or, you know, maybe God exists with a multiverse. You know, there's lots of options. Here's the key point. 
Possible worlds give an exhaustive description of everything that happens in them, including an exhaustive description of the future. So that is just kind of built into the possible world semantics and the different metaphysical interpretations of those semantics. Well, an open future open theist cannot affirm possible worlds because, you know, the open theist here is denying that there is a definite description of how the future will unfold. So Ben says that this is a problem. And it's a problem because a great deal of contemporary philosophical theology has been developed around possible world semantics. So think about like all of our talk about which world God might create. I mean, that relies on possible world semantics. And then a majority of uh, philosophical theologians, they've used possible world semantics to develop doctrines like creation and providence. And it's been used to develop theodicies for the problem of evil. So possible world semantics, it's been used to develop all sorts of different theological doctrines in contemporary discourse. Now, since the open theist cannot affirm these possible world semantics, Ben says, well, look, you know, then you're just cut off from all of that. And that's going to be a huge cost. So I think here's Ben's main challenge to open theism. So the open theist cannot rely on possible world semantics. She needs to write a new systematic metaphysics that employs whatever she replaces possible world semantics with. Well, we don't know what this new systematic metaphysics is going to, is going to be. We don't know what's plausible. We don't even know what's possible. So we can't even judge the adequacy of open theism because open theism is just not fully developed yet. So the open theist needs to start writing this new systematic metaphysics before Christian theologians should even consider the view any further. So Dale, as an open theist, you know, how would you respond to this challenge from Ben Arbor? Well, Ryan, when I was reading that part of Ben's A Few Worries paper, um, I thought he was having a hard time getting his head around how open theists think about the cosmos and about modality. Mm. And this is very common. I find that people find it very difficult to get their heads out of the kind of eternal perspective. But I agree with him that there needs to be more work on modality from an open theist perspective. I think there's plenty of work to be done. But, you know, I think anything that I want to say using possible worlds language, I can say without using that language. Mm-hmm. And uh, if taking away possible worlds means less Molinistic mischief, then that'll make the world a better place. (laughs) Um, But let me back up and look at the big picture. We have to remember that this talk of possible worlds comes precisely from the philosophy of the brilliant early modern mathematician, logician, and metaphysician Leibniz. Unfortunately, Leibniz was a thoroughgoing fatalist with no sympathy whatever for the sort of free will, which we all, in fact, know that we have what philosophers call libertarian freedom. Uncritical adoption of this way of talking just unconsciously imports with it his fatalism. And by fatalism, I mean the view that all future events are just as unavoidable or as unchangeable as are all past and present events, so that you have no more influence over what you have for breakfast tomorrow than you have influence over what some T-Rex had for breakfast a million years ago. In both cases, it's just too late to do anything about it. For the fatalist, every event is like that. It's too late for you to have any control over whether or not any event at any time occurs. And by the way, I consider Ben's eternalist ontology of time to be fatalistic in exactly this sense. It rules out our ever having any degree of libertarian freedom, as it will never be the case that alternate possibilities are open to us. It's all, so to speak, been picked out in advance so that at all times and places, it is inevitable what happens next. Now, Ben rightly points out that possible worlds language is much used in recent analytic philosophy and especially philosophy of religion. But as best I can tell, metaphysics can get along just fine without it. We can acknowledge the facts of modality, that is, about fundamental necessity and possibility, without talking as if there are such things as possible worlds in addition to what has been, what is, and what will be. And we don't have to talk about truth in a world as just opposed to truth. So in my view, there's no such thing. There are no such things as possible worlds. It's just talk. Really, we're talking about what must be, what couldn't be, what is, but might have failed to be, and what isn't, but could have been. So a necessary truth is true no matter what, so to speak, in all possible worlds. A necessary falsehood absolutely can't be true, and we describe that as true in zero possible worlds. Mm -hmm. A merely possible truth is not actually true, not, so to speak, true in the actual world, but it might have been, so we say there is a world where it is true. Finally, there are some true claims that are such that they might have failed to be true. So we talk as if there's this distant other world where what's actually true is instead false over there, right? 
Now, quite apart from this Leibnizian world talk, most philosophers will agree that two plus two is four is a necessary truth. In principle, it couldn't have been false. Two plus two is five is a necessary falsehood. In principle, it could not have been true. Hitler won World War II is a merely possible truth. It could have been true at a certain point, but it is false. And the Allies won World War II is a contingent truth. It is true, but had things gone differently, it could have been false. So, yeah, no proliferation of so-called worlds is needed to acknowledge these modal facts. And it seems to me that we can understand such statements perfectly well without relating them to imaginary possible total histories. Now, Leibniz also bequeathed to us a fatalistic way of imagining divine providence, where God, so to speak, before creation, surveys an infinity of possible worlds, which are envisioned as spatially and temporally total ways things might be, and then God single-handedly makes one of them actual. Of course, if God should do that, then this divine action would foreclose all alternative possibilities in one fell swoop leaving the rest of us with zero ability to ever do otherwise than we actually do. God would have exercised 100% of control over what happens, leaving the rest of us with zero. But a theist who believes in both divine and human libertarian freedom should reject not only this model of providence, where God unilaterally determines what shall be, but also the supposition that there could be such totalities there to actualize. We must reject this crudely simple model of providence because God has made free creatures, so governing them is more like herding sheep than it is like writing a novel. There can't be any of these so-called possible worlds, that is, total sets of what happens at all places in all the past, present, and future, simply because God's own freedom rules out that there can be, in advance, a total set of truths about what will happen. If he has any libertarian freedom at all, then there will be some lack in this set, some statements which are neither true nor false, and we have no reason to think that God has already determined all of his actions in advance. As best we can tell, these so-called possible worlds, which are really something like complete descriptions of total ways things could have been, are merely imaginary and not even possible at all. Again, to suppose that there is an actual world is to suppose that God has somehow been left bereft of options. And it's important to see how unintuitive both of the most discussed recent views of possible worlds are. So without going into all the details, I'm going to assume that listeners are a little bit familiar with the David Lewis approach and then with the Plantinga type approach. Mm -hmm. David Lewis's view that all possible worlds are equally real is, as they say, fully deserving of an incredulous stare. (laughs) It is true. We all agree that Abe Lincoln might have lived, say, past the age of 70. So according to Lewis, there is another spatially and temporally complete actual history in which an Abe Lincoln counterpart was not assassinated by a Booth counterpart. In fact, there will be a countless number of such real histories, each with slightly different Abe counterparts. Look, this is just too much. One Abe is enough. (laughs) It is his life which might have gone differently. And in thinking about this, we clearly don't need to commit to a bizarro mountain of similar guys and other equally actual histories. I mean, it's just, it's metaphysical crazy land. It's very, very clever what theoretical use he puts all of this to, which is why some metaphysicians love it, but it's really profoundly crazy. The more popular Plantinga Adams type view is bizarre, but for different reasons. What they call possible worlds are abstracta, either propositions or states of affairs, even the so-called actual world, okay? But such a thing, a long proposition stating all that happens in all places and all times, that's not a world. That's not a total history at all. It is not and could not be the events which have happened, which are happening, and which will happen. Rather, this so-called actual world is a sort of representation of what is supposed to be the complete history. Some recent philosophers have called these ersatz worlds, which is a high-class way of saying that they are not at all worlds, complete world histories, but Mm -hmm. only something which might be confused for such. They're like stand-ins for worlds. Now, why should we believe that there are any such things? After all, we don't need to believe in such worlds in order to think, for example, that some claims are true no matter what, that others in principle couldn't be true. 
that some statements are true but could have been false, that others fail to be true but might have been true. This array of merely possible worlds seems to be at best an imaginative device. So go back to Abe. It seems obvious that even though Abe died in his 50s, he might have lived past the age of 70. This is true, not because of what's happening in some other actual world, like Lewis supposes, or because of what is true in some other possible world, as others imagine. That is because the proposition Abe lives past 70 is included in a certain set of truths about all times and all places. Rather, that Abe could have lived past 70 was true, assuming that it was, because of the powers of the things which existed in and before Lincoln's day. We think that he had more years potentially in him. As things stood in 1864, the year before his death, had people made other choices, we think Lincoln might never have been assassinated and may have died peacefully in his sleep in his 70s. But notice that the possibilities changed as time went on. As of 1864, Lincoln might have made it to the age of 70, but when he went to the theater that night, and his bodyguard chose to step away, and John Wilkes Booth chose to follow through with his murderous plan after that one bullet did its work, assuming that God had decided not to resurrect Abe Lincoln. After all that happened, it was no longer possible for Abe to live to the age of 70. Mm -hmm. So both human and divine choices are continually pruning away at the you know, imaginary tree of available next events, so to speak. As history is added to, the paths not taken are no longer takeable. So once upon a time, back in 1864, we assume that Lincoln making it past 70 was a live possibility, as was his death in his 50s. But then after the assassination, his death in his 50s was inevitable, a truth such that given the course of history up to that point, in principle, no one could prevent it. And his living past 70 was no longer possible, but became impossible given the course of history up to that fateful night. So laying aside this talk about possible worlds, we can still reason about what is necessary, what is impossible, what is merely possible, and what is contingent, the whole topic of fundamental metaphysical modality. And we can also understand a temporal and changing realm of modality, what must be, can't be, or might be, given the course of history up to the present. So what philosophers have called temporal modality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. Uh, was I was like, this is just a temporal modality. So I want to make sure I'm getting this properly. So, so part of the response is to say, well, I don't really need possible worlds because we didn't. We got along just fine without them before Leibniz came along, and, and there's we've got all sorts of ways to articulate the same modal intuitions without it. So, meh. No, I don't really. I, don't, I just don't need these possible world semantics. No big deal. Is that is that kind of the idea? Yeah, I mean, we did philosophy before the 17th century without these entirely. Right. Again, it's hard for me to see what really, that really anything of substance goes out the window. You know, when I was teaching philosophy of religion classes or early modern philosophy classes, I would break into possible worlds talk and I had little cartoons of all the possible worlds I would draw on the board. Um, they're very hard to draw because they're infinite number of right. them, but uh, <laughs> I put a dot, dot, dot with an infinity sign next to all my little lines. I don't know. It just, it seemed to me for quite a long time and I actually say this in the 2007 paper that the views about time and truth uh, I expressed there require that there is no actual world. Mm -hmm. Well, it's actually, <laughs> it's more radical than that is that there's no possible worlds in the Leibnizian sense. Right. Well, if I say there's no actual world, that might sound crazy, but no, I think there is, there is what has happened. There's a set of truths about that. There's truths about, what's happening now. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some truths about the future uh, because it's in God's power to uh, make it, make things right now be such that those future things will occur. Mm -hmm. I think he can settle matters. Uh, I just don't think that God settles all the matters. Right, right, right. So it's not that it, it's, it, and, and by the way, it's, my view is not like you sometimes hear from theological open theists that, you know, just somehow the futurity makes it unknowable. Right. right, because God, God can settle whatever He wants. He can make it such that it's true that something is about to happen, and we don't really know what the extent of that is. Sure, 
And there's nothing absolute about how much free will we have either. This right. is this is one of the levers that God can pull to manipulate things to go according to his plans. It could it could be that he wants something to happen and normally I'm free with regard to a certain kind of decisions. Uh, and he just, well, Tuggy's not going to be free in that way. Like, he doesn't owe me absolute freedom. All he has to do to take away my freedom is make me not think about certain options or uh, let me think about them, but make me not have a desire for them. And so for an omnipotent and omniscient being, this kind of manipulation is very easy. Mm-hmm. And so there's nothing sort of godlike and unlimited about our freedom. Uh, whatever degree of freedom we have, I think, is granted and can easily be changed. Okay, so so sometimes there'll be these objections to open theism, saying that like you you're making you're making an idol out of like free will, you know, putting it like man like over God, and, and you're just going, well, no, like God actually has all the power; he can override my freedom if he wants. It's it's really up to God's like discretion of how he wants to use that power. Yeah, that's right. And there's a famous, you know, biblical example of Moses making his demands to Pharaoh. And then at a certain point, uh, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. It looks like that's kind of the punishment to mm-hmm. to be unable to respond properly. Like that that to be stuck in that situation where he could get out of it if he just responded rationally, but he's like lost that power. Mm-hmm. They say, Well, does that does that exonerate Pharaoh? I don't know, maybe to some tiny degree. I mean, presumably he had racked up uh, a good mountain of sins before then. So yeah, again, God doesn't owe us any certain degree of freedom. There's no reason to think that. Mm-hmm. So would you say something like this? Uh, so the, the 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 amount of freedom that he does give humans, it's in order to achieve certain divine goals, like trying to enter into some kind of relationship with creatures. Mm-hmm. But, it doesn't, but it's not that God owes us that. It's just this is part of God's purpose. So that's what it's required in order to achieve God's purpose it would be something kind of like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, one would think that he has kind of general policies about what scopes of freedom he allows, but you know, like was, was Mary free to say no to God? I don't know. Maybe he could have gone and found some other pious and virtuous virgin if she had said no, but maybe um, he would have just intervened because he really wanted it to be her for some reason. It's hard to say. Yeah. Um, there's still going to be plenty of responsibility to go around, given that there are a lot of libertarian free choices and even what Robert Kane calls self-forming choices, choices which shape and mold our own character mm-hmm. and what sort of future choices we're going to be inclined to make. But this is all compatible with people you know, being used by God in various ways. It doesn't seem like to me that he would have any obligations to to keep his hand off the scale, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So it's not like, like God's like hands are completely tied because he's like, Oh, I gave you freedom and Oh gosh, there's nothing else I could do now. Like I, like I'm completely screwed. Here. Yeah, that would be, that would be very strange. And this comes up. Um, and in fact, I've heard this in some of your previous podcasts mm-hmm. when people get really worried about what kind of risks God is taking when he creates. Yeah. Look, you have one thing I think that people tend to forget is they just assume that this creation is a one-off thing. Like he can just take all his marbles and go home if he wants. He, you know, he can do a cosmic scale flood deal and just start over. Mm-hmm. So then the risk of total disaster is is zero, given given the start over power. I agree. It's incredibly hard to to gauge what is a reasonable risk mm-hmm. for an all powerful, perfect being, right? It is, yeah. Uh, you know, if, if me and you were playing uh, Russian roulette or something like that's an obviously unreasonable risk. Driving on the freeway, oh, that seems pretty reasonable. Driving 120 miles per hour on the autobahn, maybe not. Yeah, but for God who doesn't need anything and who always has complete knowledge, I mean, he's just not going to be capable of an irrational risk. You know, they're all they're mm-hmm. all just going to be reasonable. Just because he's he's not driven by any non-rational motives or he's not making wrong-headed choices based on ignorance like we do. Yeah, th- that seems right to me uh, that this is what the open theist ought to say. And I don't see why the open theist cannot. But I've had some pushback from this. So some people will say, well, but the open theist, there's no way that, that God could guarantee that he would get whatever, like, you know, whatever his goal is for creation. There's no way he could guarantee that he's going to get that. And I want to just go, why not? Like, I just don't see why he could not get that. 
like, do, do you think that God could actually guarantee uh, that he'll achieve whatever his purpose is for creation? Yeah. I mean, it's just a question of whether it happens sooner or later. Mm-hmm. You don't want to imagine that God goes in with these brittle expectations that a very specific thing is going to happen. You know, imagine a guy has uh, robots that do random things and he's trying to get them to, I don't know, build a house or something. Mm-hmm. Like if the guy, the guy knows going in that it's, they're probably not going to just immediately build the house the second he unleashes them. That's incredibly unlikely. Yeah, but if he just keeps unleashing different robots and interrupting the ones that are working and, you know, he'll he'll eventually get what he wants in a, in a roundabout fashion. And uh, I, I would suggest that if... Um, you know, modern cosmology has taught us anything. It's that God is not in a hurry. Right. Because this, this gig has not been going for 6,000 years. It's been going for who knows how many billions of years. Kind of the, the purposes at which God is driving, which is the kingdom of God, you know, fully being enacted in the universe, that, that hasn't been seen yet. Mm-hmm. I think things will make more sense in light of that. No, that makes sense to me because it makes me think of this passage in Second Peter where he talks, where it talks about God being very patient. He's not; it doesn't count patience in the way that you do, uh, you and I do. He's much more patient than that because for him, a thousand years—that's just a drop in the bucket. It's like it's nothing. Yep. Yeah, and so that, so yeah, this, it seems right to me that this is what the open theist should say: is is go well, yeah, God'll God'll get what he wants eventually. Like when, ah, I don't know. Uh, maybe God doesn't quite know either, but he'll eventually get it. He knows that he will eventually get. To like, he'll achieve his goal for creation. I don't know that that seems right to me. Uh, I guess he's very patient. The big, yeah, the big change is giving up what Greg Boyd calls the myth of the blueprint. Mm-hmm. You know that there is a all-encompassing script for everything that happens in history. It's actually kind of weird to think that God would want to do that. Now, I mean, having a general set of aims—that's one thing. But like having it totally written in advance, like it's hard to see why there'd be much interest in actually playing it out. Like, why not just think it then? That's okay. So the, I, I, I want to ask you about this actually. Um, so John Feinberg, like considers that objection. So John Feinberg's a Calvinist mm-hmm. and his response is really short. It's just like, well, well, yeah, once you thought up a world like that, wouldn't you want to see it play out? I mean, come on. Why would you not want to create that world? It would add nothing to your knowledge and there wouldn't be any, you know, actual interaction, any actual give and take, Mm -hmm. any influencing one another. But when you unleash a bunch of creatures that need to be interacted with, that need babysitting, so to speak, uh, it's going to get interesting real fast. (laughs) And then, but it, you know, but it's, it's not worry. It's it's not something to worry about uh, on God's behalf because again, an omniscient and, perfectly good and all powerful being just isn't going to have things really get away from them. They can wait to turn out. They, they can wait and see how things turn out, but their beliefs are always going to be perfectly attuned to all the possibilities and all the probabilities. So when something improbable happens, it's not like, Oh no, now what do I do? You know, his hair's on fire. Oh, I've, uh, all my plans have been ruined. Like there would be, you know, an infinity of contingency plans basically. Look, the other, either you think something like that God is managing things like this, or you think that God's will is always done, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. It's just crazy, right? Like the worst kind of rape and multiple murder you can think of. Like, yeah, God, good for God. He got exactly what he wanted there. No, of course he didn't. Like, Mm -hmm. or just, you know, when you're a jerk, when you're a kid and you're teasing that one weird kid at school, you know. I sinned like this considerably in my youth, like all my classmates did. <laughs> this was not what God wanted. Like he, you know, he, he would have been happier if things turned out differently, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, not literally. Uh, I think that God of himself has a sufficient level of happiness where he can be called happy, even if things are going to hell down here. But still he does not like when bad things happen and he likes when good things happen. And mm-hmm. Clearly, he does not always get what he wants. Like that's, yeah, that's that's kind of mind-boggling. Either that's going to make you think that God isn't good, right, or that we just have very little grasp of what's really good and bad. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe this horrific rape and murder was just the absolute best thing that could have happened in that time of place. Mm-hmm. Well, if that's so, then yeah, I don't. <laughs> that seems really, that seems really grim. 
I mean, I thought I had just like a very basic minimal competence to know what kind of things are morally good and bad. But if that's the best thing that could have happened, you know, and not the the killer feel guilty and go check himself in for therapy or go back on his meds. Mm-hmm. Um, if that's really the best thing that happened, I guess I don't know anything about anything when it comes to right and wrong. And maybe Hitler was just the greatest saint in the world. Hmm. But no, let's get let's get real. Like, yeah. you know, he was a bad guy. And, yeah, I know that I was a bad guy in elementary school when I teased kids, you know, and my sisters and things. Yeah, it does seem like we have some basic moral knowledge where we should be able to make these judgments quite easily to be like, no, that that was wrong. And God, God didn't like that. And then we've got all this biblical evidence for saying there's certain things that happened in history. And God's like, yeah, yeah, I say that's wrong. That's bad. Um, so, yeah, it seems like he doesn't always get what he wants. This provides limits to the value of skeptical theist defenses, by the way. But that's another yeah. topic for another yeah. day. I know. But yeah, I guess that bothers me because I like my skeptical theism. But then these worries come up and I'm like, do I just ignore these for the moment and just move on to the next thing? So speaking of moving on to the next thing and just ignoring those problems for skeptical theism. Uh, so I want to come back to something in Second Peter um, that I'd mentioned earlier. And so this kind of brings me to this last objection from Ben Arbor. So, so Ben has this eschatological argument against open theism. Uh, and so it relies on just kind of t- two different things here. So first, he points out, you know, lots of open theists, they're, they're evangelicals, or they kind of come out of some broadly evangelical uh, background. And so they've got a very high authority they want to place on scripture. And so he points out people like John Sanders, uh, Clark Pinnock, Richard Rice, uh, you know, they're all affirming what the Bible says. And I think it's safe to say you're going to fall in that camp too, because you're always wanting to run these different biblical arguments for like, no, this is the biblical reason mm-hmm. for thinking this is the case. Yeah. 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 So that's the first assumption is you got a high view of scripture. Second, the open theist says that God cannot foreknow what creatures will freely do in the future. And so Ben says, well, you know, the biblical claims about eschatology, they actually affirm that God does know what creatures will freely do in the future. So thus the biblical teaching about eschatology is going to contradict what the open theist says. So if you really want to be like biblical, well, then, you know, then you're going to need to say that God knows the future. So here's how Ben tries to back that up. So he says, look at Matthew 24. So in Matthew 24, Jesus says that he does not know when he will return, but God the Father does know when Jesus is going to return. So God knows something about the future and how the future will unfold. And so at this point, the open theists like Greg Boyd, like they should be able to agree like with that kind of minimal claim. And so Ben Arbor, like what he does is he pushes a bit further. So he says, well, now consider what the biblical teaching is about Christ's return, like how that comes about. So in 2 Peter 3, and in other places, it says that Christ will return when the Great Commission is fulfilled. And so Ben also points out that the New Testament makes it clear that we have a moral responsibility to evangelize people. Like, we have this crucial role in fulfilling the Great Commission. So in other words, like our, like our free actions, like they're an essential component of fulfilling the Great Commission and of hastening the return of Christ. Well, here's where the rub is supposed to be for the open theist. So God the Father knows when Christ will return, and God can only know this if God knows when the Great Commission will be fulfilled, and the fulfillment of the Great Commission depends on the future free actions of human persons. So in order for God to know when Christ will return, God will need to know the future free actions of human persons. And that's precisely what the open theist says God cannot know, and yet the Bible seems to be teaching that God does have this kind of knowledge. So Ben can say, well, look, you know, you told me you wanted to be really biblical. Well, then let's just be biblical. The Bible describes God as having this exact kind of knowledge that you say God cannot have. So tell me, my dear open theist friend, like, how are you going to respond to this biblical teaching? Yeah. So this is one of a general class of arguments where people who have what I consider to be a fatalistic understanding of divine providence say, hey, how can you make sense of this? You know, a lot of times it has to do with prophecy and, um, you know, it, it does take some imagination, takes, I think, paying very careful attention to what Scripture says and what it doesn't. So, in this case, I agree that when Jesus says he doesn't know the day or hour of his future return, but only God knows that, this implies that God has, in some sense, set a day and hour for Jesus' future return. And I would add that if God has settled such a matter— then as things stand now, Jesus simply will come back at that day and hour with a probability of one. The objective probability of his failing to do so, given that God has ordained it, is zero. In short, God has predestined it. Now, Ben is certainly correct that evangelization is generally a free human act. And in his paper, he goes farther and says that scripture teaches 
that it's in our power collectively to cause Jesus to come back sooner or later, mm-hmm. depending on the choices we make in regard to evangelization. So this is just direct, his return is just directly, you know, conditional on our spreading the gospel to all nations. So he asserts that Second Peter 3.12 teaches that we can literally hasten the return of Christ that has caused this event to occur sooner than it is currently set to. In reply, I say, not of God has already ordained a day and an hour. And unfortunately, the translation of that verse is problematic. Mm. Some have it exhorting us to hasten that coming day, yes, but others have us hastening ourselves to it, getting ourselves ready, getting with the program, basically. Mm -hmm. As best I can tell, there is no scripture which teaches that we literally can move the time of the second coming to be sooner or later. One thing which non-open theists have a hard time imagining is quite how God can foreordain anything unless God also single-handedly determines every last detail of a complete history or just, you know, actualizes a possible world. But if the future really is open, he can providentially control history in some complicated ways, which I'll try to illustrate with a simple thought experiment. So imagine that a supervillain captures you and he wants to blow you up using a landmine. So he puts you in a garden with one path and he causes you, he forces you to walk down that path until you step on the landmine and then boom, so much for you. Okay, He does this once. And he's like, well, that wasn't very much fun. So he's going to make a more entertaining game of it. So he decides to force you to walk down a series of forking paths. And depending on which ways you go, you will either get blown up or you might make it out of the garden of forking paths and get a trophy and your freedom. Okay. Okay. So that there'd be some drama in that. Uh, but those are not all his options, right? He might tell you that there is a possibility of getting out unharmed. But in fact, whichever path you take, at some point on that route, there will be a mine that you can't avoid. So you think you're playing for your life, but really he's just waiting to see if you'll die sooner or later if you'll die over here or over there, because every path through the tree, so to speak, has a mine at some point or other on it. Or maybe he just wants to ordain your death, so to speak, 100 meters from the starting point. So it's not that any path has a bomb on it somewhere, but every path exactly 100 meters down will have you stepping on a landmine. So whatever path you take 100 meters away from your starting point, kaboom. Now, this illustrates how God can ordain things. Uh, He might ordain something to happen no matter what at a time. He might ordain something to happen no matter what within a series of time, no matter which choices are taking this, this is going to happen at a certain point. These are ways to make things inevitable without making all the choices, so to speak. So if God has already ordained an exact day and hour of Christ's return, which is what Jesus' words suggest, then even though much that happens in history remains up to us, no matter which path we take, so to speak, the second coming will happen, let's suppose, on January 1st, 2050. If he really has made Christ's return depend on when we freely finish our task of evangelization, then there can be no absolute predetermined day and hour. But then the day and hour which God has ordained might be relative to the completion of that task. Mm-hmm. Right? You might suppose that God has ordained that when evangelization is complete, exactly 24 hours after that, Christ comes back. And so we could suppose that uh, full evangelization may be destined to happen sooner or later. Um, and so then it's somewhat up to us when it occurs. On that supposition, then when Christ returns would be perhaps within some parameters up to us, even though God has fixed and alone knows when relative to the completion of the great commission, this return will uh, occur. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what he says. I don't think really tells you the difference between those two scenarios. And I'm not even sure that God would have to be tied down to some rigid definition of evangelization being complete. right. He might just be free to call it done at some point. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, that's enough. That's complete enough. I don't know. I would just say that if God has decreed an absolute day and hour for Christ's return, then that is when it'll definitely happen, irrespective of the free choices we make. Mm -hmm. And if this event really is dependent on a precisely defined, complete evangelization, then I guess God must have ordained that too, right? So maybe not all evangelization is free. I don't know. 
There's no reason why God, in order to bring out Christ's return, say on January 1st, 2050, couldn't meddle with our freedom, either you know, speeding up or slowing down the process of world evangelization. So I think Ben couldn't imagine how the second coming could require full evangelization unless God really does know future contingents. Mm-hmm. He thought that the second coming, since it depends on the presumably free human actions of evangelization, must be a future contingent. And yet Jesus implies that God knows its day and hour. I think that since God has ordained what we presume is an absolute day and hour for his son's return, then we should not think it's really a future contingent and that no teaching of scripture really implies that this event is a future contingent. Mm -hmm. That is something that as of now may or may not happen. Right. And again, we don't, to say that God has picked this out in advance doesn't really tell us the contents of what it is that has been picked. Right. And just to say the day and hour have been picked, I don't think it really tells you if that's absolute or relative or is it really, you know, an hour time range or is it down to the very nanosecond, you know, or is it just a way of speaking? Like mm-hmm. uh, it's going to happen, you know, so to speak when God has planned for it to happen, but that could turn out different ways uh, depending on quite how it's been ordained. Right. So if he's ordained a relative day and hour, again, say 24 hours after the Great Commission is fulfilled and its occurrence at a certain future range of times is in fact predestined, even though an exact absolute time is not predestined, but but having been made inevitable by God within the time range, it would not as of now be something which may or may not happen, again, within that time range. Right. So that's my long and convoluted answer to that. Feel free to push back or ask for more. So yeah, just to make sure I'm getting it. So it could be in one scenario, it's, it's like, well, God has decreed, like this is a, the exact, the exact moment of when this will happen. Eh, well, you know, maybe, maybe there's a, he has to do like override some more freedom in, to, in order to achieve that goal. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's fine. That's, that's for God to, to decide if he wants to do that. Uh, no big deal. It doesn't require God to, to like, and have this exhaustive definite foreknowledge. And then another option could be, well, he knows like he's decreed like that this event will happen, but maybe it's just like, you know, it's, it's going to happen like one hour after the last person has, 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 uh, you know, been evangelized or come to Christ or something like that. Well, like when will that happen? Oh, well, I don't know, but it's definitely going to happen one hour after the last person, uh, you know, eventually comes to Christ. So you've got some different kinds of options here. And then that, there's just like two possible options. There's a bunch of other options for the open theist to say, there's some other things you could say are going on in this passage and other ways to, for God to bring this about. Is that, that's just kind of the idea. Yeah, and the passages in Mark and Matthew, I mean, look, they're not really aiming to give a mechanics of divine providence. Right. And I don't think they even presuppose any really precise view. I mean, the point of it is that you don't know when Christ is coming back, you disciples. Mm -hmm. And so that's why you have to be vigilant and not careless. He's like, I don't even know. But but the the payoff, the application is that you guys don't know. So you need to stay on your toes. Mm -hmm. That's the real point. So I think we have to be careful trying to get some point about the mechanics of divine providence out of it. No, that seems fair because it, it seems like, yeah, I think we've, we've demonstrated is there's a couple different ways, different like uh, providential schemes that you could have that would still get that, that point that Christ is making there. That would, that would yeah. still like back that up. Yeah, yeah. That seems right to me. Another favorite one to bring up is, you know, Jesus predicting Peter will deny me three times, but mm-hmm. you know, a passage that's really on our side as open theists is uh, the book of Jonah. He goes to Nineveh and says, God will destroy the city in three days. And then that does not happen. And so it looks like the point of the prophecy was not really strictly just to say something about, you know, future contingents, mm-hmm. um, but rather it was to challenge the people to repent before God. And when that happened, there was no destruction according to the story. So yeah, some, some prophecy, you know, is, but there wasn't any explicit condition, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. the city will be destroyed in 40 days unless you repent. It was just stated outright. Right. But uh, rather than just putting a bag on their heads and waiting to die or, you know, moving, moving out of the state, uh, they all, they all, according to the story respond with repentance. So they mm-hmm. must've assumed that it had a condition with it. Right. Like it was somehow implicit in the, yeah. in the statement. Yeah. I, th- I think I've even read some commentaries too, where they, they'll say, well, yeah, typically the prophet's supposed to give the conditions, but Jonah just hates these people so much that he doesn't even want to do that. Cause he's just like, no, I really want God to have them destroyed. So yeah, there's a condition, but I'm not going to say it. 
Yeah, that that fits the psychology of the character for sure. Yeah, because that's because you see that at the end where where God's like Jonah, like why'd you do this? And he's like, he's like, well, I knew you're God of forgiveness, and I didn't, I didn't want them to ask for forgiveness, and I didn't want you to forgive them. Like I really do want to see them destroyed. I'm going to sit here in this nice place on the mountain and watch them be destroyed. Hmm. Yeah, and hmm. it's interesting that Jonah doesn't get stoned as a false prophet, right? It was, in fact, a true prophecy, but it wasn't a it wasn't a pure prediction. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think a way to state it would be um, the content of what his prophecy uh, said would really be something like you're cruising for a bruising, like maybe your dad used to say when you mm-hmm. were getting out of hand. You know, as things stand now on the route you are now, you're headed towards total destruction 40 days hence. Uh, and they're like, oh, yeah, you're right. Dang. You know, and so they they all repent and. Okay, no false prophecy. Mm-hmm. It was a it was a true prophecy in the sense that it was really from God. Uh, it was really divinely inspired. Now there can be prophecies that are purely predictive. Uh, what about the case of you will deny me three times? Right. I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe Peter was so you know overwhelmed with fear that Jesus had a supernatural insight into his character, and he just was going to fail three times. And he could still be blameworthy for that because of how he had already settled his character by his previous free choices. Mm -hmm. So that would be an obvious way to take it. Or maybe Jesus is warning him so that he will, you know, buck up and pray harder or something, make a good effort. And then, you know, he he would actually not deny Jesus. But if, if that was what was meant, then that wouldn't make Jesus a false prophet. Right. So I don't know. I don't think the story is really clear, but anything they're going to say involves certain knowledge of a future contingent. We're going to say, no, I don't think so mm-hmm. because there's, there's no grounds on which one could possibly know this thing when in fact it's not even true right now. Right. And this whole discussion, you know, we're assuming that God is in time. Right. And this is a big difference, I think, between Ben's perspective and our open theist perspective. Yes, this is true because I, I knew um, when I had talked a bit, a bit about this a lot. Yeah. He wants to say God's timeless. Yeah. Yeah. The, so th- this kind of view, it doesn't require your sort of view about time mm-hmm. that it's closely related to God and is not really created. But I think it requires that if there is time, then God is in time there. There ain't anywhere else to be. Mm-hmm. This whole outside time thing just doesn't make any sense to me. It never has. You're going to say it's false that God exists now. <laughs> That's if God's eternal, he has to exist now. Okay. Yeah. Well, he's in time. Right. Um, but he's, you know, to say that he's bound by time. Uh, I like some of your work on that sort of, I think trying to unravel some of these tough sounding objections that actually turn out not to be so tough. Oh, right. Like, so the distinction between saying, well, he exists at a time, but he's not in time. And I'm like, what could that possibly mean? Like, yeah, or just imagining time like it's some kind of chain wrapped around him, like somebody mm-hmm. has imprisoned him in this, or it's a box that you've someone stuck him in and he can't get out. Help. <laughs> no, it's not. It's uh, not if it's related to God in the way that you suggest, especially. But I am assuming that. But as you point out in some of your other work, I'm I'm not worried about that because I just think there's zero warrant in scripture for the idea of a timeless God. Yeah. So insofar as we're guided by scripture, we just have to think that God is is in time, right? He yeah. at a certain time he parts the Red Sea, certain time he sends his son, certain time he will judge the world through a man he's appointed according to Acts. It's all action in time. It is all action in time, and then all the words to describe etern- eternity are just temporal terms. And then in Revelation, you've got mm-hmm. the one who was, is, and is to come. And, yeah. I'm, and I'm like, it's the ancient of days. Yeah. You know? There was, there's this one paper. I don't know if you've read this. Uh, I know you're, you've got various feelings about Richard Bauckham, but um, Richard Bauckham did write a paper on the A theory and B theory of time where he mentioned uh, the book really? of Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> no, I haven't he read He mentions that. the book of Revelation as an example of, well, that's just the A theory right there. It has was, is, and will be. Um, so there you go. Yeah. And I was like, oh. Wow. Okay. So Bauckham is uh, willing to read some, some philosophy of time. Okay. Yeah. I just wish he read better stuff about personal identity <laughs> instead of like Paul Ricoeur and whatnot. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. I did mention this to him once at a conference saying, you know, there's this really great stuff going on in the analytic tradition and we are at an analytic theology conference. Um, let me tell you about this. And he was, he, he was fascinated. 
he'd mm-hmm. already written up his paper where he's mentioning uh, record and whatnot and on personal identity. And I was like, oh, well, oh, well, maybe in the future he'll, he'll do that. <laughs> we'll see. Well, he could get a start by actually responding to my 2011 paper <laughs> in which I explain identity problems for his Christology of divine identity. But, yeah. Uh, he uh, yeah. seem to be too eager to do that. I don't know if he's read that one. I didn't ask him that. Um, but yeah, that, I, I would, I would like to see him respond to that. I think it would be interesting. Well, you can, you can cut this bit out if you want, Ryan, mm-hmm. but I sent him that paper before I published it. I was like, Hey, you know, am I getting you wrong here? Give me, give me some feedback. Correct me if I'm misreading you at all. And he sent me an email. Oh, thanks. I'll look at it. You know, hmm. that was it. That was the last I ever heard. Uh, yeah. Oh, well, man. Yeah. He's a, he's an interesting guy. So yeah, I, I would really like to see him respond to that. That would be really cool. He is an interesting guy and he's a, he's a super heavyweight scholar, mm-hmm. which I think is why people take his divine identity neologism so seriously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just don't think it's helpful, you but that's think? another conversation. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, so, so Dale, I, I guess I want to summarize kind of in this way. So all the arguments that we talked about today, those are just the ones that I felt confident to try to present on Ben's behalf because um, he's got other arguments he wants to develop. But I, I just really want to say like how, how grateful I am to you for helping me kind of pre- get Ben's ideas out there and have some kind of conversation. Uh, and I hope that this conversation does pay tribute to Ben's life and his work because here we are, two people trying to take his work very seriously and really engage in it and think about it carefully. Um, D- Dale, do you have anything you wanted to say in closing? Yeah, I wanted to say a little bit more about Ben. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't agree with some of his philosophical and theological commitments, but I have to say that in my experience, unlike many critics of open theism, he didn't indulge in contempt for his opponents. So he strove to understand us rightly. He tried to win us over by highlighting a bunch of difficulties, real difficulties for our views, sometimes directly arguing against our views. I, I really only met him and interacted with him once at a 2014 conference uh, that I think he helped organize. And uh, I've really been honored by his critical engagement with my work. Um, to, to be refuted uh, is, a, is a great honor. And um, I think his truth-loving and reason-loving ways are godly and honored God. And um, I think he'll have his reward for those and his other good deeds I think in memory of him, we should we should do likewise and uh, try to treat our philosophical opponents like we want to be treated. And also to keep in mind that as we go about our philosophical business, for all we know, this is our very last year or this is our very last day or our very last hour. You know, so let's let's spend our time and our efforts well. All right. Thank you so much for that. And again, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been a really fascinating conversation. Thanks. Thanks. It's been a pleasure. And there you have it. Another episode of the Reluctant Theologian podcast. Stay tuned for episodes on analytic theology, classical theism, and modal collapse. 